Welcome to Look Both Ways, a podcast about what we can learn from the experiments of the past. The show is made possible by my employer, Ken and Carta, a digital transformation consultancy who exists to build a world that works better for everyone. Our usual formula for an episode includes a detailed look at an issue facing the world today, often a big, hairy, complicated problem. However, we wanted to lighten things up a bit, with the intention of it being an episode shared around the holidays. Then, a portion of our production team got COVID, and we had to delay the release of the episode until now. And it is a fun episode. There's a fake game show and a secret origin story. In the second half, I sit down with someone who has the type of job description that makes the rest of us jealous. Ajel Wade, aka The Toy Coach, joins us to talk about her career as a toy designer, patented inventor, and what she's learned about making it in the toy industry. But first, the podcast game show that asks a wellness influencer's favorite question. What's more natural? Let's play What's More Natural. I list two different items. You have to tell me which one occurs naturally. For example, what's more natural, catnip or concrete? Catnip. In order to play, you must shout out your answer as loudly as possible, regardless of whether you're in a public space or not. Okay, ready to play? What's more natural? Broccoli? Or the rubber used to make airplane tires? The correct answer is the rubber used to make airplane tires. Broccoli is actually a human invention. It was bred out of the wild cabbage plant to have a specific taste that people would find more palatable. Broccoli does not occur naturally. Natural rubber, on the other hand, is harvested directly from rubber trees found in Africa, South America, and Southeast Asia. While synthetic rubbers are widely used, they're not as durable as natural rubbers. So for things like airplane tires, natural rubber wins. That's all for this week on our completely imaginary podcast-based game show. Thanks for listening to What's More Natural? The discovery and development of rubber is usually credited to Charles Goodyear, as in Goodyear Tires. But, fun fact, the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company was not started by Charles Goodyear. It was founded nearly 40 years after Charles Goodyear died, and was named for Charles Goodyear as a kind of tribute to his development of vulcanized rubber. Vulcanization is not the process by which Leonard Nimoy became Dr. Spock, but it is actually the process that turns natural rubber into rubber as we know and love today. Goodyear's quest to make it practical has carved out its place in invention origin lore. And for good reason. Vulcanized rubber is one of the most important breakthrough technologies of the Industrial Revolution. Today, it's used to make things like shoes, hoses, medical gloves, mattresses, balloons, chewing gum, and yes, airplane tires. So, to summarize so far, broccoli is a sham, rubber is amazing, and everyone can agree that personal blimp travel should be the wave of the future. But that's a different episode for a different day. Hashtag blimps for all, hashtag gone blimpin', hashtag up up and away in my beautiful blimp loon. Our look back this time comes in part thanks to Stephen Johnson's book, Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. 
Charles Goodyear may have successfully developed vulcanized rubber in 1839, but its origins are actually much older and more playful than you might imagine. In the late 1400s, during Christopher Columbus's second voyage to the New World, Columbus and his men encountered tribes of the Hispaniola people in what would be present-day Haiti. They were playing a game with a ball. Balls had long existed in Europe. Okay, maybe some of you are more mature than I am, but for those of you who aren't, let me warn you, we're going to spend some time talking about balls. If you cannot say or hear the word balls without channeling your inner eighth grader and thus thinking about male anatomy, let's just get all the giggling and sniggering out of the way right now. Balls, 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 balls. Okay, now back to our regularly scheduled podcast already in progress. Balls had long existed in Europe. That itself was unremarkable. But this ball did something they'd never seen before. It bounced. The balls leapt off the ground, seemingly defying gravity and enthralling Columbus and his men. They were made from the naturally occurring white sticky liquid from several species of latex trees. Today, we'd call it rubber. In the 15th century, (laughs) it might as well have been magic. The game they were witnessing is called Ulama. Players aimed at a small goal, advancing the ball using only their hips and backsides. The game held great cultural significance, and its origins have been traced even further back than Columbus. Variations of the rubber ball game were played by Mayans, Aztecs, and the Mesoamerican natives dating as far back as 1500 BCE. We also found some impressive efforts around the world to revive the game today. Check out lookbothways.kinandcarta.com for links to videos and more info. But once they perfected the process of molding, controlling, and shaping the material, they didn't stop at games. They made things like shoes, rain shelters, and protective armor. It seems these Mesoamerican engineering minds appreciated what rubber could do, even if Columbus and his men didn't. In Wonderland, Stephen Johnson writes, Columbus had returned to Seville, disappointed by his failure to bring back gold. He had no idea that he had stumbled across a material that would prove to be just as valuable and far more versatile in its eventual application. Charles Goodyear's development of vulcanized rubber changed the world and was undoubtedly the key to unlocking its extraordinary versatility. But had the Mesoamerican rubber ball games been taken more seriously, would we have gotten there sooner? In Wonderland, Johnson argues it's a powerful example of the often overlooked power of play. Johnson writes, The prominence of the Goodyear narrative is partly due to a long-standing bias towards Euro-American characters in the history of innovation. But I suspect it also derives from another, more subtle bias. The assumption that important innovations come out of serious research like Goodyear's, fueled by entrepreneurial energy. But long before Goodyear's investigation, the Mesoamericans took the opposite path, driven not by industrial ambition, but rather by delight and wonder. The rubber balls of the Olmecs make it clear that games do not just help concoct new metaphors or new ways of imagining society. They can also drive advances in material science. 
Sometimes the world is changed by heroic figures deliberately setting out to reinvent an industry and make a fortune in the process. But sometimes the world is changed just by following a bouncing ball. In February of 2021, when this show was still called Working Better and we thought approaching one year of a global pandemic seemed crazy, we made an episode titled, Are We Forgetting How to Play? In it, we pulled together perspectives from behavioral scientists, technologists, artists, and designers to examine why we're so hardwired for play, but so often misunderstand how it should fit into our personal and professional lives. The episode also features the Lego Foundation, the accidental invention of the microwave, and FBI agents posing as NFL cheerleaders. It's a fun one and worth a listen. It's a subject we're passionate about and have been eager to return to. So, for broader context about why play matters, why it's in decline, and why it's worth taking seriously, that episode is a great place to start. Having said all of that, we're thrilled to speak with someone with an intimate and fascinating perspective on the world of play. Ajel Wade is a toy designer, patented inventor, educator, and host of the Making It in the Toy Industry podcast. After over a decade in the business, Ajel decided to leave the corporate toy world to become the toy coach. Now she helps inventors and entrepreneurs to bring their toy ideas to life. Welcome to the podcast, Ajel. How are you doing? I'm great today, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks. I'm really excited to have you on the show. I love what you do. I love toys. Um, so I think it's a, it's going to be a great conversation. Yeah. But just to help people out, um, can you share us out a little bit about your story and your journey to becoming the toy coach? Oh, yeah. Well, it was a long road. 10 years, 10 plus years yeah. in the toy industry, was it? Yeah. And um, I started out studying toy design at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. I worked in arts and crafts first. I, uh, the first job I ever got just blessed me with three patents right off the gate. So I had a real wow. strong start in the industry. But honestly, I had no idea how strong of a start that was to later on in my career. And I realized that that was a strong start. I got to work for my dream toy company, Toys R Us. All my childhood uh, dreams came true. <laughs> so you actually got to meet Jeffrey the giraffe there as well? Was he? Yeah, I did. Actually, now that you say that, I'm 90% sure I have a photo with Jeffrey that I probably <laughs> need to post online. So, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember when they redid the office, they actually put in a giant, I guess, resin statue or something. I don't know what it was made wow. of. Um, and it was so cool. I never took a photo with it to this day. Anyway, so I worked for Toys R Us and then they closed. I, I hopped around a few different places, Party City, landed at a company called Creative Kids, got to be the VP of brand and product there. And then during the pandemic, I don't know what happened. I just wanted a change. I wanted to be able to spend more time at home. And I started to think maybe I could do this. And I took a, a leap and it paid off and I've been wow. able to do it so far ever since. So we'll see how long I can keep being the toy coach, hopefully forever. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the dream. So, so yeah. what exactly do you do as a, as a toy coach? You're not coaching toys, I take it, but rather coaching people who wanna to make toys. Yeah, so when I first started, I just took on a client and it was like one specific person who wanted to develop one specific product. Uh, but my dream was always to help many people, right? So I created a course 
that's very interactive, like an online course where you have the information you learn, but we actually take 12 weeks together where we're meeting weekly mm-hmm. as a group to like go through it, to ask your questions, to, you know, get some inspiration, to meet other people who are developing it along, developing toys along with you. Um, and I've started to help inventors and entrepreneurs and even some people that want to work in the toy industry. Mm. So that's been fantastic. The only downside is when people want me to help them develop their toys. And I'm like, I can't because I, you know, I'm committed to this bigger picture and this bigger plan and a bunch of people. And I just don't have time to dedicate to one project. And honestly, the cost to have one person commit to your business the way that you would and start and like develop it from scratch for most Mm. new entrepreneurs is just cost prohibitive. So that's why the course and the group coaching is so beneficial to new bee toy creators that are just starting out. That's great. And what are your clients like? I I imagine you have people from all kinds of different backgrounds. Yeah. So I should say, like, I also do still take on like clients every once in a while for like design related projects. Um, And in that it's like, you know, graphic design work, product design work, uh, branding work that I'll do. But with my students, like the students, the or I should give them another name than students because it sounds so juvenile students, but like the toy people that take my courses, they're all from like, they're software engineers, they're Mm. bakers, um, they're uh, mechanical drafters, they're industrial designers, they're, I don't know, they're moms, just full-time moms that all have ideas for either toys, games, or both, and either want to make their own small toy company or they want to sell their ideas Hmm. to a toy company and collect royalties. What's your favorite toy invention story? Oh, like my personal invention story? Yeah, yeah, what do you like, yeah. Oh, like, I'm sorry, in, oh, in the whole toy Oh, no, no, history. which one do you like? So the, the history of toy making, sorry. Yeah. Well, also, if you want to talk about yours, the favorite one you came up with, but well, let's just start first with the history of toys. Yeah, I loved um, the story of how Silly Putty came to be. Mm. Yeah, Silly Putty was a pretty cool story. I talked about it on History Channel, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah, so the U.S. government was wanted to create, like, a cheaper alternative to rubber, right, during World War II, And James Wright was a part of the war production board Mm -hmm. and he accidentally created Silly Putty. He was combining, what was he combining? I think it was like silicone oil and boric acid. Okay. And then the substance was like a rubber, but it was also like a liquid. And he noticed like when he threw it down, it would just kind of spread out. Um, And eventually it it turned into silly putty, like a phenomenon. It was put one like salesperson put it in an egg and then they realized that it could transfer images. And and it just had so, it was just so toyetic. Like it had so many different, so much playability to that product. So I don't know. That's a cool story. I, it's every inventor's dream to just accidentally make a multi-million dollar toy invention. <laughs> like, sure. Can we please? Yeah. yeah. Why, why was it put in an egg? I, I played with Silly Putty as a kid and never really questioned it. Like, well, of course, Silly Putty comes in an egg. Well, why not? But what, what do you know what the thought was there? Like, why did they choose an egg? I don't know why it they chose an egg, but I would come to think that it was probably the only way to make something of a substantial size. And like, how else would you package it? In plastic? And then it would just look like a flat, thing you wouldn't understand what it was wasn't it i feel like it, at one point it was called crazy egg or something i don't know if i'm making that up oh. but that feels familiar to me um i don't know actually why it was i'm gonna have to look into that now why it was in an egg maybe it was originally like an easter promo or something that they put in the I'm easter sure. basket but yeah i just like well of course i open the egg and there's silly putty inside yeah, like, you know, <laughs> like where how else would one get silly putty yeah 
That's great. And I also want to... Where it comes from. Yeah. It comes from X. Yeah. And so, but I guess, do you have a favorite invention story of your own? Like a, a you know, a favorite story of a, the toy that you came up with? Yeah, I know. Uh, I remember coming up with I mean, I, I mean, I love the. I have three things patented, and it's not that many, but it's still cool. But it's more I than am, I have. So <laughs> I guess my favorite, because I feel like it's a repeatable process, would be when I came up with a five-in-one friendship bracelet creator. Hmm. So that, like, basically, they came to me and they were like, "Gel, we want to create something to compete in the friendship bracelet market." Hear what the existing people have. We need to make something that's better than this. And in the toy industry, um, calling out how much, how many pieces something has, or how much of something your product can make, is huge. Those call-outs are huge for buyers and huge for consumers. So if you can, if there's like a three-in-one friendship bracelet maker, a five-in-one will be so much better, and they'll be the same <laughs> price, right? In a perfect world. So. Yeah. I sat down with the jewelry designer at the time at this toy company. I know what toy company has a jewelry designer, but we did. (laughs) I sat down with her and I said, okay, I want you to show me all the different kinds of friendship bracelets. I want you to sit down and show me all of the different friendship bracelet types that you can create and how they're made. So she sat there and she listed them all out. And then she showed me like all the tools she would use and how she would make them. Mm. And so I sat there and I'm like, okay, okay. And I'm looking at everything she's using. And then she lays out all her tools and I'm like, okay, what if I took like this piece off of this tool and like put it on top of this tool? And I was like, would you still be able to use it? And she'd be like, well, yeah, I guess so. And she's like, you just have to make sure, you know, she would say like, you just have to make sure this there's an opening here. Otherwise the bracelet has nowhere to fall from. So then I would be like, okay, and what if I added a clip to the bottom of it? Would you still be able to use it? And she'd be like, I think so. So then I went and I went and took a piece of foam core and I cut up, cut up my drawing. I had drawn like a rough model of what it was going to be. And I took a piece of foam core and I cut it out. Um, and I, I stacked it so that it would be thick, as thick as the real thing would be. And I cut it to the shape. And I was like, okay, here is like a mock-up. I want you to try and make all the bracelets that we talked about. And that's what she did. She like used it and she was able to make like five different friendship bracelets. And that's what we sold. I I went to the the CMO or my boss and then we went to the CMO and we're like, yeah, we made this five in one friendship bracelet creator. This is going to allow you to make, it was like a Komihimo bracelet and like another, I don't know. I don't remember all the names. There were like five bracelets. (laughs) This one thing can create and it's so cool. And it was huge. It was a big deal. And I was very proud. I, and I love the way that it came together like that. Like what I was talking about earlier, that piecing of outside of the toy industry, jewelry world, and then like knowledge of in the toy industry, like what we needed to achieve was for mm. the same price, make multiple kinds of bracelets. And how can we make that in one unit? So I, I just love that experience. Yeah. That's great. I, I only thought there was one kind of friendship bracelet, so already I'm learning stuff left you know left and right here. Um, so but many. I also, yeah, I like the way you, you think about it is that you know creativity comes out of constraints, right? So that you you know whether those constraints are commercial or they're the nature of the game or the market or the or the person who may be using with it, you're in some ways always have to design to the constraints that you have. And those actually don't inhibit creativity. They engender creativity because you have to yes. solve a you have to solve a problem in some way. And I love the fact that you went and immediately built your own mock-up of it. You know, I, I, that's so great. Thank you. So we talked about 
like silly putty and then also versus this friendship uh, bracelet builder right those are two like on i, I would I'd put those like maybe on the spectrum of if you're looking at like free play versus directed play almost like you have one thing that's a very specific tool to build mm-hmm. a very specific thing whereas you have something like silly putty or you know legos or slinky or something like that where it's it's not really designed to you know have an outcome other than to engage the person using it is there different ways you think about them or is it always sort of the same process that you use when you approach that problem? So I actually think because my history in the toy industry being very focused on crafts has led me to really enjoy what I call a uh, guided free play. Hmm. And so I have a, an appreciation and understanding for people that just want full on free play, no instructions, blocks, pieces, you do whatever you want to guided free play, like a craft where you have instructions, but you could choose to not follow them if you wanted to, to, to really guided play where it's a push button toy and you are essentially pressing a button, something will happen and maybe you press another button. Uh, I, you know, I, I believe every toy has like its place and its space. And I just welcome toy creators that have like super free play ideas um, and more guided ideas to like come and learn from me. I, I think that, there's a place and a need for all of those things. I must, I just feel, you know how adults Mm -hmm. at the end of a hard day or stressful, whatever you might work out, but there also might be times where you just sit in front of your favorite show or go to a movie and just chill. Maybe kids need that push button time just to do that. You know, when they're like, you know what, I'm still, I'm overstimulated. I want to do something simple. I just want to press a button, hear a dance, you know, but then there are days where like, okay, I want to build something. I want to get my hand. I want to use Legos. I want to stack. I want to create. Yeah, for sure. No, there's definitely room for all kinds of toys. I guess what I was trying to get to is, do you as a toy designer have a different process for trying to unlock the end result of that? Because obviously, Mm. like when you know it's a directed play of saying like, I'm going to end up building five friendship bracelets as opposed to... I want to give. I, I want to give a child that's going to allow them to express their creativity. You know, through some. You know, like uh, you know, whatever, like loosely guided or complete free play. That's a great question. Okay, I would say I don't have kids yet, but when I was in the toy industry, I would go to like Central Park here in the city yeah. and just watch family and kids like to learn mm. to be like, what are they doing? What are the kids doing? Are they yeah. like shoving leaves in a corner and making a pile? Like, what are they doing? And I would design for that. Mm. But at the time when I was in toy design, I was not designing free play products. But if I were to design free play products, I would just want to hang out with my cousins, hang out with my friends, kids, and just see what they do when left to their own devices without other toys, like with regular things, with nature, with things they have around the house. Like, what are they doing with that stuff? Um, And build around that. And then if I were doing guided play or push button toys, that's where you really look at the trends. Like, what are they watching? What are right, they used right. to? What are they, what distracts them? What engages them? Things like that. But yeah, I would just watch them. I probably, all the balloons I showed you earlier in my room that yeah. I have, I would <laughs> like love to see a kid like play in this. Yeah. And I'm sure that would inspire ideas for some sort of new building block-esque, balloon-esque toy. I love that. Yeah. And, and so along those lines, What's the sort of strangest idea that actually worked? Either an idea that you came up with or one of your students or clients or, or we're still struggling with the name for them. Your, uh, your, your, your fellow toy makers. Yeah, my toy people, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, your toy people. My toy people. Well, for I would say just for the industry as a whole, I did not think poop 
would stand <laughs> such like stand the test of time as it has. Yeah. I mean, unicorns have like you know risen and fallen in popularity and kind of stay stable, but they have like their moments of super of superior peak, right? Yeah. But poop anything. I mean, <laughs> there's like um, well, there's like don't step in it. Um, there's that poop flamingo and now like a poop turtle. What? Uh, there's like silly poopy hide and seek by what do you mean? I mean, there are so many poop toys wow. that are doing that too well just because it's about poop. What I have noticed is when it first started, the poop theme was very, um, very about like the characteristics of poop. Like you don't want to step in it. That's mm. the game. Don't step in it. And it's brown and it's like very, you know, or it's like a dog is pooping. You have to pick up the poop or whatever. Um, and now it's turned very rainbow colored. Like all the poop is like rainbow or all the, all the characters that are pooping are super rainbow or something like that. And it's like, yeah. And the play pattern doesn't have to really be about the poop itself. So yeah, it's interesting. So, okay. Well, yeah, I I did. I was not aware of the popularity of poop. I think, you know, the last thing that I knew was like sort of the fake rubber poop. And then now like the stuffed poop emoji. I did not aware of a series of games based around not stepping in poop. Those those are valuable life skills, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I uh, this complete side note, but I was coming into the we're going back to the office a little bit. And uh, so I'm in the in the office bathroom and there's a gentleman and he's got his foot up on the sink and he's cleaning off his shoe and, and I'm like what happened and he goes do you really want to know the answer to that question I'm what? Like, no no I don't I, I'll just say it was gum you have gum on your shoe you're oh washing off gum no, <laughs> yeah. no. terrible when you're designing a toy obviously you have to sell to the toy manufacturers toy distributors but you also want to have a toy that people want to buy yes so how do you balance off those two what could be diametrical or, or at least conflicting uh, design goals? Yeah, that is a great question. So the category that I first started my career in was the arts and crafts category. The very first company I worked for was an arts and craft com- crafts company called Horizon Group USA. And the crafts industry is just notorious for having really tight margins. Mm. And, you know, with dolls, you can develop something and it'll cost you like $6 for the doll. Like let's say an 18 inch doll with clothes, maybe $7 now. Um, and you can resell that for 30 bucks, you know, so the margin can be nice, especially if you're doing uh, direct to consumer, but with crafts, it's like you have $2 and 50 cents to make something that if you're going to be selling it to a retailer and then you're making money off of that, you have $2 and 50 cents to to make something that a consumer will be, will see as worth $10. Mm. And it's something that with crafts, it's not assembled. Like it's like, you're selling them work to do like here, child, like like I'm selling you work. (laughs) Like do you want to do this work? Um, So uh, I think crafts was like the best challenge for, for that because it's this balance of one, what's the experience that I want the kid to have when they take it out of the box Two, how heavy does this product have to be so Uh that a customer will think it's worth $10? Even if you know with it being lightweight, it is worth $10, the customer has to feel that before they take it home. And then the buyer has to to feel that in their meeting because they know their customers. They know their customer is going to want to feel a weight of a box if they're paying $10 for it, right? So that is what you have to think about. Like, what's the buyer? The buyer's thinking about the customer. The customer is going to think about their money and their money has to communicate this. So I remember I was doing a craft kit. I don't, I feel like it was a, um, 
like it was some sort of like ceramic kit or we wanted to no 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 it wasn't it was like a headband kit mm. and it had a lot of stuff in it and it was ten dollars it was like a diy headband kit but it was so light like the box would have just felt empty you know so we had to figure out like what can we add even though this box was filled with like things to decorate all these different headbands and, and glitter and all the stuff, but all that stuff was light. So I think that we, we added in like a, what is it? Like a paper mache piece, uh, like a, one of those paper mache. So they're heavy. The powder itself is heavy. Right. Right. So that you could create something that you're going to put on the headband. That was not <laughs> the main focus of the kit. That was not even the best part of the kit, but it added the weight that would allow a parent to say like, okay, yeah, this, this feels, this feels like $10. And then they get it home and it's filled with a bunch of lightweight stuff that they probably didn't think about. But like, it, you have to, like, you might want to give the kid one thing, but you know you have to give the parent one thing to be able to decide at the store if they're going to buy it. And same thing with the buyer. They need to have that value shown on the packaging, but felt by the box. It, I mean, it's a, it's a fun balancing game. It's like a puzzle. That's wild. I never would have considered that. That, but I, I know what you mean. It's when you pick it up. Yeah. As the consumer, you're like, oh, there's. What am I paying ten dollars for? There's nothing here. Yeah. Like, how how do you ever sell an origami craft kit? Like, it's just I don't know. <laughs> oh. What do you put in there? The knife? I, I don't know. Scissors or like like how do you? Well, that's when it's not even in a box. It's oh, like right. in a sleeve. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then it's cheaper. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's it. As soon as it's in a box, it has to weigh. It has to have some substantial weight. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So what? What were were some of your favorite toys as a kid? What did you like to play with? I was obsessed with Polly Pockets. Like, Uh, yeah. Obsessed. Obsessed. I would set them up on my kitchen table on Sundays, like a little neighborhood. And I had, like, little Polly cars. So I would drive the cars around the neighborhood. And I had my favorite teacher. My favorite Polly was a teacher Polly. And I would have her, like, pick up kids and teach them at the school. <laughs> like, that's what I did. <laughs> loved it. And then I also loved crafts. My mom, I remember one time brought home this wood burning kit. I burnt a piece of my uh, finger off. It took like whoa. years to grow back, Ow. but, <laughs> but I loved it. And that might've sparked some of my craft creativity. I would spend summers just like watching Barney and like uh, Bob Ross and <laughs> making things out of paper and just trying to I don't know, like build houses and boats and just ridiculous things. So I was very into Polly Pockets and then crafts. That's awesome. Yeah. Polly Pockets were great. Both of my kids uh, played with them. Yeah. What, what do you think young Agel would think of, you know, where you're at today, that this is actually, that you're actually paid <laughs> to make, well, A, that you were paid to make toys, but now you're getting paid to help other people make toys. She, well, I think she would be confused as to why I don't have what I thought I would have a short blonde, like black bob. Um, like haircut, <laughs> if you don't know, a bob haircut, I like do. super yeah. straight, and then black <laughs> suit, white top, black briefcase. That's what I had envisioned myself being. She would be like, "What is happening right now? Like, what are we? Where are we going with this? What's our life goal here?" I think she would just be confused and con- maybe a little concerned. Like, are we gonna? Are we gonna be an adult, or were we just doing what's happening here? I, I never. Um, I mean, so you were I, very I, determined, like focused young businesswoman of the future when you were young. Yeah, hundred percent. Like I wanted to work with kids, but I, I didn't think that it was gonna be like, like I didn't think. Well, I guess I'm not really working with kids now, but I wanted to work with kids. That was my main focus when I was younger. And then I, as I got a little bit older, I remember imagining myself like going into an office with like glass ceilings and stuff and sure. like just, I don't know. That's what I thought adulthood was. 
So I think she would probably be pleasantly surprised and she would be like, wow, this is nice. This is fun. But what are we doing? (laughs) (laughs) And how do you, you know, how do you keep that sense of play alive for yourself? Because obviously you're an entrepreneur. You got a lot of work to do. You got to go out and, you know, get business all the time. And if you're not busy selling yourself and your ideas, like no one's going to go do it on your behalf. How do you keep that from turning into a grind for yourself? I mean, it is a grind. I think I probably have the opposite problem. Like, how do I get serious? (laughs) (laughs) I find um, my hair has a lot of impact in how I act. So I'll just like change it up depending on what I need to do. Uh, So I'm like, if I know I'm doing a lot of appearances, like fun, colorful hair, if I need to get down to business, I might just leave my Afro because it's a little bit, it's a little bit less like, um, high maintenance and it's a little bit less like oh I'm gonna go do a show I don't know different yeah and also I'll, yeah it's more for me about like how do I get out of play and like get down to business because it's a it is a grind yeah. and you can get so wrapped up in I don't know and when I ta- I feel like when I teach it's also very fun so it all kind of feels like play good all of it that's good <laughs> and for people listening uh, please describe your your hair because i can see it but they're, they're not they're, oh. the people listening don't get the full uh, they can't hear how how lovely your hair is so if you could describe it that would be helpful well my hair right now is like half bright purple and half like a sea foam blue green situation yeah uh-huh and my lipstick is purple as well i i love <laughs> yeah no i love color. it so, looks great thank you i remember the first time i went to my vp toy job with pink and purple hair. I was so nervous. I literally thought they were going to kick me out. And I was like, Oh, I posted it on Instagram. I was like, guys, I'm going to work like this. And they didn't, they actually, everyone seemed really happy. What I noticed is this hair color makes people very happy. Like it, it, everyone that on the street will just smile as they walk past me. It's really nice. That's awesome. Yeah. What advice do you have for people who are looking to, you know, go into the toy industry that, you know, what have you learned about, you know, starting out and, uh, you know, finding your way? Yeah. Okay. So if you want to go in the toy industry, it's, it's networking is key. If you can go to uh, like a school for toy design, that is going to help you immensely. If you're still like looking at colleges, FIT has a toy design program. Otis has a toy design program. Uh, It's, it's about learning the industry, learning how to design, but also, Um, just forming those connections and relationships because the people that had those programs have serious relationships with Hasbro, Mattel, um, Jax, Jazzwares, I mean, everyone in the toy industry who, which is where you're going to want to apply. And if you're at the age where you're like, Oh, I don't really want to go back to school. There are toy industry organizations that you can join all the time. To start, I would say you can listen to my podcast Um, because I talk about all of these things. Like I talk about the organizations you need to join. And I, I think I just put a search tool on my website so you can like search like organization and then just find it, you know? (laughs) So yeah, no, there are toy organizations. Uh, even search my name and see like, where's the gel going? Like maybe I need to be there, you know, (laughs) Like, (laughs) like women in toys is one, um, the toy association is like the major serious or organization for people that are seriously involved in the industry. And they have young professionals networks in our industry, get involved and offer your services or your help to start getting to know people. And then eventually you can join the toy industry too. We're running out of time. 
Um, I just want to make sure, Ajal, is there anything else that you wanted to, to talk about that I didn't ask you or anything else you wanted to share that, that people should know about you or about designing toys? Yeah, I would share two things, okay? So the first thing I would say, if you're thinking right now like, oh, Ajal, I want to work with you. I have a toy idea or I just want to know where do I start? The first thing I tell everybody who messages me on this this on Instagram, and honestly, I should make a recorded message because I do it every time to like retype it or re-say it every time. First thing I have to say, if you want to make a toy idea is um, listen to episodes one through three on my podcast. Why? Because episode one is going to help you unlock your great toy ideas. Episode two is going to teach you about making them toyetic. It's like the, um, the toyetic principles that I teach. And then episode three is where we talk about uh, finding factories. So that's a great start. And I want you to listen to that before you try to work with me, because I want you to have, be able to ask good questions. Like I want you to take the time if you do book a session and like ask good questions and have like a head start. Um, and then the second thing I would say, if you want to take it even further, I'd love to have you as a part of Toy Creators Academy. Don't know when this will air, but that will happen in March. That's when I'm going to reopen that. So Go to toycreatorsacademy.com to learn about that or hang out with me on Instagram at the toy coach or go to the toycoach.com. I don't know. You got options. Do whatever you want. <laughs> do whatever you want to do. Free play. Awesome. Well, this has been really exciting, Ajal. I've, I've learned so much about, about toys and about you. I'm really excited to see what else you're going to do next. We're going to continue to follow you and see what other great ideas that you can come up with and also what you can also help other people come up with, you know, so sort of multiplying your creativity. So I really like that. Thanks for joining us today. It was great. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Thanks again to Ajel. Follow her on Instagram at the toy coach and visit thetoycoach.com if you'd like to learn more about the Toy Creator Academy. Also check out Ajel's podcast, Making It in the Toy Industry. We'll include links to Stephen Johnson's book, Wonderland, on our website as well. This episode was written and produced by Max Parcell with occasional juvenile asides from your host, Scott Herms. Editing by Max Parcell and Chris Mitchell. Sound design by Chris Mitchell. Original music composed by Ethan T. Parcell and Lucas Parcell. COVID supplied by an anonymous donor. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Follow us on Instagram at lookbothwayspodcast. Visit lookbothways.kinandcarta.com to listen to all available episodes or to leave feedback. We'd love to hear what you think of our show or any ideas you have for future episodes. Or if you really want to catch our attention, rent out the Goodyear blimp and have it float gently around the country to broadcast your message in the coolest way possible. That's all for now. See you next episode.